0: Most legends are born of truth and serve a purpose, whether it is to scare children or even adults into good behavior, or just to entertain. Legends are born, and just like all tales and myths, legends can die. But the best ones live on, and sometimes they are even reborn. If at any point in history, man figures out a way to destroy one of these legendary beings, You can bet that it will leave a vengeful spirit, and if they find a way to come back, you better look out. Welcome to Freaky Folklore, the podcast where we discover the horrifying legends across the world and tell terrifying tales of monsters both ancient and modern. Today we are discussing Spearfinger, a liver-eating witch from Cherokee myths and legends. This show is part of the EerieCast Podcast Network. Find more terrifying tales at EerieCast.com and be sure to follow us on Spotify or your favorite podcasting service. You can leave an honest review on iTunes too. The more we get, the more we grow and hopefully the more monsters we can explore. If you would like to submit an encounter or suggestions for future episodes, you can email them to Carmen Carrion at gmail.com That is C-A-R-M-A-N C-A-R-R-I-O-N at gmail.com You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook for information on future episodes. The Appalachian Trail is neither the longest nor the most scenic of the world's great hiking trails. But in terms of influence and inspiration, it is the granddaddy of them all. When I was a boy of eight years old and on vacation in New Hampshire, I experienced the Appalachian Trail's allure for the first time. My family and I rode the Cog Railway up the residential range of 6,288-foot Mount Washington. We began our hike at the base's deciduous hardwood forests before ascending through the conifers and crumhults to reach the summit's fog and wind-shrouded Arctic Alpine region. But what really captured my imagination was the Appalachian culture. Appalachia is a vast area that stretches from Southern New York to North Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. It encompasses 420 counties across 13 states, spans 205,000 square miles, and is home to some 25 million people. Appalachian culture is a way of life that dates back to the 1700s, when Europeans began immigrating to America in greater numbers. But I was more interested in the Appalachian history before that, back when there were more than 50 Cherokee towns and settlements, before European immigrants forced them out. Before European settlers began spreading throughout the southeastern United States, The Cherokee were the dominant indigenous American tribe in the Blue Ridge Mountains for centuries. After I found out through my mother that my grandmother had been half Cherokee, my fascination grew even more. I fantasized about being a young boy back during that time and often wished that I had no European connection but only Cherokee blood running through my veins. I looked the part already. I had inherited my grandmother's dark hair and hazelnut eyes. I even began telling my friends that I was Cherokee, it wasn't completely untrue. I wanted to change my name so bad that I couldn't stand it. I researched Cherokee names for boys and secretly called myself Wahia, which meant wolf. My best friend once told me that the name fit much better than my birth name, which is Mark. It's such a common and boring name, I thought there were at least two other marks just in my same grade at school. Anyway, there is a story to be told and I'm getting to that. During my obsession with Cherokee history and culture, combined with my fascination with the Appalachian Mountains, I came across a book about Cherokee legends. I read the book and looked at the picture so many times that by the time I graduated high school, it was held together by tape. When I went off to college, I threw that book in a box and took it with me. It was the beginning of a large collection that only grew as I was in school, where I majored in American Indian Studies. After I graduated from college, I finally tackled the Appalachian Trail, as I had always dreamed. I hiked alone for four months, sleeping under the stars at night, and watching for signs of the Tawainoa, giant birds of prey, and the uktina horned serpents, or any of the legendary creatures I had read about over the years. I didn't have a spiritual experience or find answers to the mysteries I had been searching for, but I did have an awakening. I became stronger and more independent than I had ever been before. When I finished my journey through the Appalachian Trail, I went to work as an area and cultural studies professor at Appalachian State University. A few years later, I fell in love and got married to my beautiful best friend, Alicia. And a few years after that, I became a father. It wasn't until I took my son back to the Appalachian Mountains the summer of his 10th birthday that I finally found proof, at least for myself, that the legends were real. Jack and I, Jack is my son, we packed very lightly. He was upset that he couldn't bring his Nintendo Switch, but I explained that it was pointless because there would be no power to charge it. We started in Roan Mountain, Tennessee, and headed north. The plan was to tackle a week-long hike and then rendezvous with Alicia in Damascus, Virginia, where we would stay for the night before heading home. I thought one week out in the wilderness would be perfect for Jack, just long enough for him to get a good taste of the great outdoors, before I plan a longer hike with him. The first two days were trying because it rained most of the time. Jack complained about the weight of his pack, the MRE meals, and just about anything else he could come up with. I hoped that he would catch on and begin to enjoy himself, but it wasn't looking good. I was getting discouraged. I felt like I didn't even know my own son. At one point, he had stopped to tie his shoelace for what seemed like the sixth time that day when he bent down the contents of his pack tumbled out onto the ground. I lost it and yelled at him. I'd never done that before. It brought tears to his eyes that he tried to hide and he was quiet until we made it to the next shelter and set up camp. We barely spoke the rest of the evening. That night I was laying there staring up at the stars and I could hear Jack softly snoring a couple of feet from me. I had apologized to him for being so harsh but I couldn't help but worry about how I was going to repair the damage I had caused. I was deep in thought until a strange sound pulled me out of it. I heard scratching and then leaves rustling. I thought it might just be squirrels, but I had to make sure it wasn't something more dangerous. I sat up and looked around just in time to see my pack with our food and water being drug off into the dark woods. I threw on my boots without tying the laces and took off to rescue the pack from whatever was trying to steal it. I ran in the dark for quite a way, chasing the pack until it finally came to a sudden stop. I still hadn't laid eyes on what had grabbed it. I walked over to pick it up, and that is when I heard cackling. Looking around, I saw an old woman leaning up against a tree. She looked harmless enough but I wondered, what the hell was she doing way out here, all alone? I stepped towards her, prepared to offer help if she needed it, but when I did, she took off and disappeared into the dark, cackling all the way. I scratched my head and pondered the strangeness of the situation before I scooped my pack up off the ground and turned around to head back to camp. I made it maybe three steps when I realized I didn't know which way to go, I hadn't been paying attention to my surroundings, and there was no light to lead my way back except moonlight. I had to take a deep breath to calm myself as my heartbeat began to pick up speed. I had to get back to Jack. He was all alone, and if he woke up, he would be terrified. Once again, I had failed as a father. Jack woke when he felt someone stroking his hair. He rolled over and looked up into his dad's eyes. For a moment, he thought he saw a weird twinkle in them. "'You know, if your hair was longer, I could braid it for you,' his dad told him as he continued to stroke his hair. Jack slapped his hand away. "'Dad, stop! You're being weird!' His dad jumped back and ducked his head. "'I am sorry, son.' I didn't mean to offend you. And then suddenly he jerked his head up and looked at Jack. I have a surprise for you. If you will wait a moment, I will be right back. Jack watched as his dad crept off into the woods, and moments later he was stunned when his mother, alone, stepped out of the darkness. Hi, Jack, she said sweetly. I have missed you so much. Come give mommy a hug. Jack may have been only 10, but his sense of danger was keen, and he knew that something was off. Mom, how did you get all the way out here? He asked as he cautiously stood and took a step back. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition in the u.s more than 50 percent of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide so why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma ohio challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org folklore and traditions abound in the great smoky mountain valleys And if you're searching for a memorable tale to share over the campfire, the Cherokee legend of Spearfinger is definitely the most infamous. In the Great Smoky Mountains on the eastern border of Tennessee and in western North Carolina, lived the Cherokee legend known as Spearfinger. The meaning of her Cherokee name, Utlunta, is she had it sharp. It refers to her right hand's pointed finger, which earned her the nickname Spearfinger. She was occasionally referred to by her second Cherokee name, Nonyonyo. This name, Stone Dress, refers to her skin's stone-like appearance. Her sharp finger is the forefinger on her right hand. The sharp finger resembled a spear or an obsidian knife used to slice her victims. She was a horrifying sight that sent shivers through the people of the mountains. Her mouth was stained with the blood of the livers she devoured from her victims. Her single weak point was her evil heart, which was concealed in her right hand. She thus closely grasped it to keep it safe. Being made of stone, she had to make sure the heart in her hand was never exposed to danger. She produced a rumbling thunderous sound when she walked because she was composed of stone. She pounded stones and rocks into the soil. Her voice resonated in the villages as it traveled down the valleys and off the mountains. The birds would take off into the air as a result. The villagers interpreted the birds' influx into the skies as a sign that Spearfinger was approaching. When Spearfinger constructed a rock bridge known as the Tree Rock that reached up through the air toward the higher beings, she upset them and ended up wearing stone clothing. The bridge was destroyed by a strong lightning strike from the higher beings, who also encased Spearfinger in a body formed of rock and debris, to demonstrate to her that she was being too arrogant to attempt to rise to their level. The Cherokee originally identified the spot in Blount County, Tennessee, where Spearfinger's tree rock remnants are still visible. Spearfinger can shapeshift into the relatives of her young victims in addition to having a spearfinger that she uses to spear her victims. However, if she is in sight of someone else while in a different shape, she is unable to change back into her stone form. She typically assumes the appearance of an elderly woman whom the child knows and doesn't dread. She has the advantage of being made of stone, which prevents arrows from penetrating her skin. They either smashed into tiny pieces, bounced off, or fell to the ground. Without effort, Spearfinger can pick up boulders and rocks. She is able to smash them into gravel, stack them to construct barriers, and combine them to make even larger boulders that she may then combine to tumble down the mountain, causing chaos and destruction. In her hunt for victims with fresh livers, Spearfinger benefited from the Cherokee traditions Cherokee tribes would light brush fires in the autumn, leading Spearfinger to the villages where she could go hunting. The mountainsides would be covered in fires, allowing the tribe to gather the falling chestnuts. The brush fire had already rendered these roasted. Likewise, Spearfinger profited from the smoke plumes rising from the valleys. The Smoky Mountains got their name from the whirling fogs. When she went after the children she would use them as cover her skill of deception was her most potent weapon she used to tuck her finger away under her robes she would then pull it out and stab her victims in the liver as she would resemble an elder member of the tribe the kids would trust her and allow her to approach them she would invite them in before spearing them with her finger spearfinger would offer to brush their hair and lull them to sleep She would then take out their liver for her dinner. The Cherokee tried to defend against outsiders entering their camp by being constantly on guard. Most of the time, they made a conscious decision to stick together and avoided approaching strangers. They became wary of anybody who ventured into the woods alone, themselves as an outcome of this. They could come back as spearfinger in disguise and invade the village unnoticed. Spearfinger also transformed into her victim, using her gift for shape-shifting. If her victim died soon after she stole the liver, she would conceal the body. She would then go inside their house and wait until everyone went to bed. She did this so that she could steal their entire family's livers. The boogeyman of the time was Spearfinger. Children were warned by their parents not to venture into the woods at night for fear that Spearfinger would catch them. They made sure the kids understood the monster could appear as their aunt or grandmother. They would never know whether it was a monster or a family member this way. Hunters who were alone in the woods were extra careful because they sometimes saw an old woman with a disfigured hand creeping through the dense undergrowth while singing her woodland songs. The hunters would immediately retreat to their encampment as she began to sing. According to Cherokee folklore, Spearfinger stabs her victims in the heart or the back of the neck. She then extracts their livers. She moves quickly, so if she gets close enough, there is little chance that you will get away. She doesn't leave a scar, and the victims don't feel the injury. However, the victim only has a few days until they pass away from liver failure. The Cherokee of the surrounding villages all came to a meeting, summoning a council to try and figure out how to get rid of Spearfinger once and for all. They devised a strategy to get her attention, knowing that she would be drawn down as she looked for the blood of fresh livers. They constructed a pit and covered it with branches to conceal it before lighting the flames as usual to gather the chestnuts. When Spearfinger saw the smoke of the fires, she came down from the mountain, crushing the ground beneath her as she ran. She concealed her spearfinger behind her cloak when she approached. The males were fooled by her appearance as an elderly woman. She cried out to them for assistance while hunching over and covering her spearfinger in an effort to draw them in. The tribal members launched their arrows at her when they finally realized her trick. But they all broke and fell to the ground since they had no idea how to kill her. With her pointed finger cutting at them, Spearfinger charged at them in a rage. Her stone skin was not punctured by the sharp points of the spikes as she dropped into the pit, but instead the spikes broke when she struck them. She repelled further arrows that they shot into the pit like fireflies in the night. To help them, birds descended from the skies. A titmouse attempted to assist by singing, heart, 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 in its song. The hunters aimed for Spearfinger's heart, but they aimed for her chest, not her hand, where her heart was secretly hidden. Although Spearfinger's heart was covertly hidden in her hand, the hunters aimed for her chest and shot at it instead. The arrows were useless but they did manage to remove the titmouse's tongue from its beak. Since then, a titmouse's small tongue has helped people to identify it as a liar. The small bird didn't mean to lie, he simply forgot to specify where the heart was. The titmouse took off again for the heavens and never came back. They continued to fight unsuccessfully until a chickadee, another bird, swooped down from a tree and landed on the witch's right hand. The warriors interpreted this as a sign that they should target that area. And they were right, since her heart was hidden within the hand that she kept doubled into a fist. She started to run frantically towards them with her long spear finger and hopped around in the hole to avoid the arrows as she became genuinely frightened. Eventually, a lucky arrow struck exactly where the spear connected her wrist dropping her heart on the ground and she fell down dead ever since that day the chickadee is known as a truth teller and when a man is on a journey if this bird comes and perches near him and chirps its song he knows he will soon be home safe despite her death cherokee storytellers continue to tell the legend of spearfinger and point out the place where her stone structure fell down The legend even shows up in pop culture. On the Travel Channel's Mountain Monster Season 6, the team hunts down seven mythical creatures that are somehow linked to the most terrifying monster of them all, Spearfinger. Each monster is trickier than the last, so the team members must rely on their personal experience with the area and their sense of brotherhood to keep the hunt going. The 2021 film The Hike has a resurrected spirit form of Spearfinger. The film is based on true hiking stories from the southern parts of the Appalachian Trail and the production company's possible real-life run-in with the Native American legend Spearfinger. A couple from East Tennessee goes on a three-day hike in the Great Smoky Mountains. The fun starts to dissipate when they start finding evidence of possible criminal activity scattered throughout the trails. And the deeper they plunge into the wilderness, the more they feel like they are being watched. If you have a continued interest in the legend of Spearfinger, and you're ever in the Great Smoky Mountains, and hear rumbling without any clouds in the sky, remember, it might just be Spearfinger, stomping through the valleys and over the bridges while singing. Her hunger may have become so great that it caused her to come back from the grave. mark was desperately trying to find his way back to the campsite where he had left jack alone and sleeping he wasn't sure which direction to go so he stood in silence for a moment listening hoping to hear anything that may lead him in the right direction but what he heard took him by surprise he heard a woman singing it was almost like a chant and the words seemed eerily familiar He began walking quietly in the direction that the voice was coming from, and as he drew closer, he could make out the words of her song. The words he knew from his studies of Cherokee legends. They caused him to shiver, suddenly realizing that Jack may be in danger. He wanted to run to his son, but the noise of him crashing through the woods would cause him to lose his element of surprise. So he followed the song of the witch as quietly but as quickly as he could he began to see a glimmer of light and as he approached he was relieved to see it was the embers of the campfire that he had built earlier he watched from the edge of the tree line before entering the campsite and he saw what he had feared what seemed impossible there was an old woman the same woman he had seen in the woods sitting cross-legged on his sleeping bag and in her lap was Jack he was laying there as if he were sleeping while the witch combed his hair with her twisted fingers when Mark stepped towards them her head snapped up and she shot him a threatening look as she gripped Jack tighter let him go Mark ordered trying to hide the fear in his voice He is just a boy." The witch cackled again, just as she had before, and then she replied, "'Children have fresher, tastier livers. But after I devour his, I will eat yours, too.'" Mark watched as she slid her hand out of Jack's hair, revealing the long, speared finger that she used to slice her victims. She held it up in the air for him to see before lowering it towards Jack's neck. He didn't think, he just reacted as he lunged towards the witch, landing a blow with his boot to the side of her head. She fell over, releasing Jack from her grip and dropping something from her hand in the process. Mark went to grab Jack, but saw the object that she had dropped as it rolled across the ground. It was a heart. Her heart. He stared down at it as it beat just as if it was still in her chest. He remembered the legend clearly just then. Her heart was her only weakness. If he could destroy it, she would die. Instead of grabbing Jack, he reached for the heart. But as he did, the witch brought a large stone up from the ground and swung it at him. It connected with his shoulder and sent him flying across the campsite. It took him a moment to realize what had happened, and when he tried to get up, he fell back to the ground in pain. His shoulder was dislocated. Using his other arm, he slowly pushed himself up onto his knees and then slowly began to stand. Across the campsite, he could see the witch. She had picked Jack up as if he weighed nothing and was cradling him in her arms. She cackled one last time before turning and sprinting off into the woods. Thunderous sounds filled the air. and mark could have sworn that the ground trembled beneath his feet. He ran after her, knowing that if he lost her, he may lose his son forever. He was amazed at how nimble and strong she was, managing to stay far ahead of him even while carrying a ten-year-old boy. It took everything he had to run with his arm dislocated and hanging limp at his side. The pain was enough to cause him to fight the urge to pass out. The forest began to thin as they headed towards the base of a cliff lined with boulders. She reached it ahead of him, and he saw her dart behind one of the large stones, only to emerge moments later without Jack. She must have hidden him away back there. Mark was trying to come up with a way to get past her, or to distract her, but he was coming up blank. He stopped, not daring to get any closer until he thought of what to do next. Then he noticed that she began picking up large stones one after the other, and as she did, they seemed to fuse together until combined, they were as large as a small car. In an act of superhuman ability, she heaved the giant rock formation over her head and tossed it effortlessly at him. As it flew through the air, the stone pieces came apart and began to rain down all around him. He tried to sidestep, but when he did, one caught him in the stomach and another caught him on his injured shoulder. The pain was too much. It took completely over and his body began to go limp as he crumbled to the ground in a heap. When Mark woke up later, He thought he was emerging from the worst nightmare he had ever had until he heard Jack moaning next to him. He sat up and reached for his son, who was still wrapped in his sleeping bag. He pulled back the top and asked, Hey, buddy, are you okay? He had pulled it back just enough to see Jack's face when he noticed that Jack's skin had turned grotesquely yellow. Jack moaned again and tried to sit up, But before he could, he vomited all down his chest. Mark began to panic. He quickly unzipped the sleeping bag to examine Jack for injuries. He found none. So next he checked him for a fever and found that he was burning up. He dug his cell phone out of his backpack and turned it on. But of course there was no signal. Desperation began to set in and he began to pace trying to figure out what to do next. And that is when luck finally came his way. He heard voices coming from the trail as two young hikers appeared not far from them. He ran to them explaining that his son was sick and that he didn't have a phone signal. It just so happened that the young men were carrying long-distance radios. They called for help, and a search and rescue team was sent. Within the hour, Mark and Jack were life-flighted to the nearest hospital. Once at the hospital, they immediately diagnosed Jack with acute liver failure, even before beginning any tests. Shortly after that, they ordered blood tests and an ultrasound X-ray. While Mark was sitting, nervously, in the waiting room, Alicia finally arrived, and they waited together for more news. They were sitting side by side, When the doctor came into the waiting room with a puzzled look on his face, he was rubbing his chin nervously as he started. I don't know how this could have happened, but Jack's liver is gone. It is like it just vanished. We are going to do everything we can to help your son, but I've never seen anything like this. We would like your permission to do an exploratory surgery so that we can go inside and see how this may have happened. After asking what the risks were and getting a full explanation, they agreed to the surgery. The hours seemed to drag on and finally the doctor came back with one answer. They had no idea. It was a mystery. Jack had no toxins in his system. He tested negative for hepatitis and any other infections. The strangest thing was that on the inside it looked like his liver had been removed by a highly skilled surgeon, even though there was no evidence of external incisions. Mark knew then what had happened to Jack's liver, and he was thankful that his son had survived, because in the legend, no one ever did. The doctor said that Jack could go on a donor list, but he didn't know if he would live long enough to receive a new liver the police were called to investigate because it sounded like a case of organ theft. They questioned Mark and Alicia and everyone that knew them but came up with nothing. Even the police were baffled. Two weeks went by. Jack's parents camped out by his bed. Then, amazingly, a liver that may be compatible came available. The surgery was done quickly and all went well and within a few weeks, they were all home safe. While Jack was recovering, he began to ask many questions, and one day, while his mom was grocery shopping, he told his dad, I don't want to go back out there anymore, Dad. The wilderness and outdoors are not for me. Besides, I think that witch ate my liver. Thank you for listening to Freaky Folklore, the podcast about mankind's horrifying legends and myths. Don't forget to follow Freaky Folklore on Spotify and iTunes. If you can, leave the show an honest review on iTunes to help us grow. Freaky Folklore is part of the EerieCast Podcast Network, the home for listeners who love to feel scared. Go to EerieCast.com to find other terrifying podcasts such as Tales from the Break Room and Destination Terror. Tune in next week as we discuss Raw Head and Bloody Bones. Is it one monster or two? Either way, it may be coming for you. Until next time, stay safe out there, because this world is a strange one.